0: Good evening. All right. Sorry, I look like a schmuck tonight, but uh, (laughs) let me explain. Um, (laughs) um, Part of what um, we do here at Cornerstone is we um, support church planning. And church planning is a big part of Cornerstone because Cornerstone was a church plant um, quite a while ago. And um, so what happens is about a third of our budget goes... Um, or a third of our missions budget, goes towards um, planting churches. And we do this through a group called Vision Arizona. And Vision Arizona um, is a group of sister churches in Arizona that have the same heart to plant other churches in Arizona. And we work with Converge, who is the conference that Cornerstone is affiliated with. So Vision Arizona, some of the sister churches of Cornerstone that you might not have realized were our sister churches. Sun Valley is a sister church of Cornerstone, uh, Mission Community, um, Rock Point, um, Harvest, um, Church of Celebration, and there, there's a lot of lot of sister churches, and so we get together and we um, and we have a, a team called the Vision Arizona Lead Team, and I've been on that um, lead team for about 12 years, even um, on that team back when I was first at Cornerstone, and our goal is to plant churches. So this week I'm at what's called the Assessment Center, where um, uh, lead team members from all over the nation gather together, and we assess future church planners. So if you can imagine this, it's a, it's actually a little bit of a nerve-wracking um, ordeal. Church planners from all over the nation come in, and they basically have to sit in front of us and go through all these crazy tests and all these crazy scenarios, and we get to mess with their brains, and um, they go through counseling. Um, it's just crazy. So, I came directly from that assessment center over to here, and I don't like sitting in assessment centers in anything else but comfort, so there I am. Um, So, another thing we do here at Cornerstone and Missions is we support frontline ministries, um, we support parachurch organizations, and then a third thing that we uh, put our money towards is um, sending people. Um, overseas and we have um, two main missions that we focus on here at Cornerstone and you've heard a lot about them. One is Haruma with Mama Zipporah. Um It's Haruma uh, Children's Home over in Kenya and over the summer we take four different two-week trips um, over there. Plus we um, each year we do um, sort of a push to raise money for either a ch- like last Last year, we did the big push to build a a girls' dormitory, which is done. Um, And this year, we're going to be pushing for more college scholarships. The other group that we work with is Harvest India. And you guys have met Suresh and his wife, Christina, up on stage. And what Harvest India does over in India is crazy. I I told you that Converge um, and Vision Arizona, we plant churches. Suresh and Harvest India have planted 1,800 churches over the last um, 15 years in Harvest India. Um, they do mercy ministries, um, anything and everything. So they are moving and grooving over there. Well, we just had a team go over there, a team of 10, which I was on, and we just got back um, last, uh, or this Saturday night at about 10.30 at night. Um, the team did well. Uh, the ministry was really cool. We got to spend a lot of time with the Cornerstone Orphanages, that uh, the orphanages that we um, support got to uh, hang with those kids we got to do a VBS over there um, just a lot of a lot of fun stuff um, and got to come alongside and, and really um, help out the process over there a lot of fun um, pretty tiring um, I, about the second half of the Super Bowl not only was it boring but I was just like oh, and I fell asleep and so um, I assume Seattle still won correct yeah okay so they were winning when I fell asleep um So um, we're excited about um, what's happening at Cornerstone. We're excited about um, what God has in the future. And and as far as missions goes, um, if God's ever tugged on your heart saying, you know what, you you probably should go out on a mission, India would be a great opportunity. India is a great opportunity um, to see firsthand the front lines. And one of the things that we we are able to sit down with Suresh, a couple quotes that just hit me that he, he said, the first one was, um, we were asking him, "Hey, so what are you doing and we 're just getting this whole glimpse of everything and he 's just doing so much and he finally looked and he took a breath and he said, "You know what I, we can 't do everything as Christians, but we should do something, and that 's sort of his call you know we 're going to do something if there 's a need here we 're going to do something we might might not be able to juggle everything, but we are we 're not going to sit back and watch and and the Other thing that's really powerful, and he looked at us point blank because we kept asking him the question. And and most leaders go over there, and and the leaders go over there and they're intrigued by Suresh because he's one of the best leaders we've ever seen. Um, What he has organized and what he has done over there is mind boggling. And so, quite honestly, we keep saying, How do you do this? How how do you do this? you do stuff without having money. You do stuff with, and he constantly says, well, I I believe in God, we'll do it. I, I, and he says it all the time. I, I, I am believing in God that this will happen. And we're like, are you crazy? And, and so he just starts doing it, and all of a sudden, God comes in. And and over and over and over and over and over again, without a default, God comes in. And we're just like, man, this is incredible. And Suresh finally looked at us. And he says, why is it so incredible? God can do anything. And he and he point blanked us. He's all, here's the problem with you Americans, you have no faith. You have no faith. And we're like, whatever. <laughs> but but seriously, on the inside, we're like, he's right. We don't have any faith. Um but he and so it was just a phenomenal opportunity to just to see what was happening over in India. So if you've ever um, thought of going on a mission trip, that would be a phenomenal one. Obviously, we do Kenya and Jamaica as well, um, amongst other things that happen with, um, within our ministry. So, all right, so we're doing this whole Journey 180, and it's been a while. Um, I was in India for two weeks. Uh, Manny the Mellow was up here um, a couple weeks ago, and um, he is now more famous to my daughter than me. Not that I was ever famous with my daughter. Because apparently he knows Susan Atkins, uh, <laughs> and she's all, "You know who that is?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's the Manson girl." And and because of my wife, my wife loves the whole murder mysteries and um, serial killers. My wife has all the books on every serial killer, and I say this all the time: if I end up dead, it's her. I just trust me. I'm speaking from the grave right now. It's being recorded. She killed me. Um, but. Um, and so my daughter knows a lot about a lot of these guys. She's like, oh, my gosh, Manny Millow!" And I was like, yeah, we, we think that in the office, too. Manny is is the bomb. Um, so he was up here, and he was uh, able to cover um, Noah and the ark and the flood and the Nephilim, which I'm—thank thank you, Manny, for hitting that one for me. Um, and then um, last week we had the special all-church meeting, which, which was cool. And then on Sunday mornings we've been— um, going along. So if you haven't gotten one of these, uh, make sure you grab one of these Journey 180s. It sort of gives you a little a little calendar of where we're at. And tonight we're going to actually combine a couple, because uh, we lagged behind a little bit. We're going to talk about Isaac and Jacob um, tonight. And then that would put us, oh, we're moving along. So um, Isaac and Jacob, but just so we can catch up a little bit. And every once in a while, if we hit something on Sunday that really needs to be um, hit on Tuesday nights. We'll make sure we do it, at, and vice versa. And so let, let's um, back up a little bit. And it's really important because um, we want to make sure we understand that um, as we look through this timeline, we've gone down from Noah, who was about twenty five hundred, three thousand. He was right around that twenty five hundred um, BC mark, and now we're moving. And you can sort of see this timeline um, in the on the bottom. We're up to Abraham, and Abraham is about 2,000 BC um, with Abraham. you've got to give or take about 100 years on that, but we'll just put the signpost at around uh, um, 200 or 2,000, I'm sorry 2,000 BC. Um, and we've talked about Genesis one through 11 is really the beginnings, the origins of a lot of things, um, not only the origins of um, the universe, of the earth, of mankind, of um, sin, of government, of ethnicity, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, But from 12 on, we really just follow Abraham and his descendants. Um, And so in in chapters, um, in chapter 12, we see right off the bat um, the Abrahamic covenant. And so Sunday we talked a little bit about two different types of covenants, so I just wanted to make sure we understood. There's two different types of covenants that you'll see in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. Uh, The first type is a conditional, a conditional type of covenant. Um, It's also called a bilateral covenant, and what this means is that in order for this covenant to be honored, both sides have to hold up to their end, okay? So a conditional means I'm bound to this covenant on condition that this person meets their end of it, okay? So it's a conditional um, covenant, and we see that, for example, with the Mosaic covenant, and as long as Israel held up on their end of the bargain and obeyed God, then God would hold up on his end of the bargain and bless Israel. And when Israel did what Israel often did and disobeyed, then calamity um, would ensue. Well, there's a second type of covenant, which is an unconditional or unilateral covenant. And that means that only one side, only one side needs to hold up their end. And there are several covenants in the Old Testament that are are this. And one is the Abrahamic covenant. Um, covenant between God and Abraham. And God made his promise, which is in chapter 12. And let's go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And, the, and it says this The Lord um, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be a blessing through you. So God gives Abraham three promises here. The first promise is he promises him land. He promises him land. The second promise is he promises him descendants. Okay? He promises descendants. And the third promise is a blessing. A blessing. So he promises Abraham land. He promises not only will he give you land, but I will give you descendants. Okay? And from those descendants, I will also um, give a blessing. And then we see, and we're not going to go through it tonight, but we we see in chapter 15 the ceremony that takes place. And, And what happens is God asks Abraham, well, go grab these specific animals and cut them in half, okay? So covenants back then were a little more gory, okay? And so put each half of the animal on each side of the path. And what would happen in these covenants is once the animals were put on both sides, the halves of the animals, they would walk basically this blood path, it's a blood covenant, and both men would walk through, and once they walk through, that, that's just like shaking the hand or signing your name on the line. You were in. Well, we see in this particular one with Abraham that God causes him to fall into a sleep, and only God walks through this, taking it from a conditional to an unconditional covenant, to where God says, "No matter what you do, Abraham, this is what's going to happen. You will get land." You will have descendants, and your descendants will be blessed. And the meaning of blessing is, basically, your descendants, the bloodline will go through your descendants and ultimately end up in the Messiah or the Christ. And, by the way, Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. It's the anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. Um, And so... So from this point on, now we are following this blessing. We are following this covenant all the way to Jesus. We are following this promise that God made that, that through Abraham, the world would be blessed. They would be blessed by the Savior, the Redeemer, and that's Jesus Christ. So we covered that. One other thing I want to hit before we get into this whole Isaac and Jacob thing is the whole idea of what, because um, we're going to see this quite a bit through the Old Testament, and so we want to hit this early. It's true that everybody can sort of trace back to the original Adam and Eve, and, and Manny <laughs> talked about the, the no belly buttons, um, which would be true. They would have no belly buttons, I would assume, um, which would be weird. Seeing a person, in, you know, seeing them in a swimsuit with no belly buttons, just think about it. that's what I do. I think about weird things like that. It would just be weird. Um, um, Whether they were found by an archaeologist post-flood, I don't know. But um, they they were uh, no belly buttons. But um, so you can trace it all the way back there. But really, we need to trace all the way back to Noah's three sons. Because on the ark, we had eight people, Noah and his wife and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. So there was eight people. And so you get three sons— Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and everybody on the earth today can trace their lineage back um, to these um, three sons. And it's actually a fascinating study. We, don't, we won't be able to go through it tonight, but it's a fascinating study um, to see how each one of those has played out. And Whether you're from a German heritage or an English or African or Chinese, whatever, you can trace it back um, to one of those. And we do know, however, that the Japhites went into Europe. And they went into India. That's where we get the Indo-European stock. Okay, so Indians, um, India Indians, and um, the Europeans are are close relatives. Um, The Hamites went down into Africa, but not just Africa. They also went over into Asia and then over the Strait down into the Western Hemisphere. So the Hamites actually really moved quite a bit. So um, those who are in Africa and then all the way into the Orient, and then what we would know is the uh, American Indians, the, the Western Hemisphere, and you could see that play out. They, a, lot of ver- a lot of similarities. You could see the, uh, the ziggurats, the um, pyramids, and all that, very similar in the way they do things. And then the Semites, the Shemites, um, basically just stayed in um, the Middle East. They didn't really move anywhere. So, um, so in saying that, we get this whole term of Semite, Um, and often as you go through the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament you see referred back to, you see these uh, different names. Um, The Semites, um, which mean, you know, the term you're anti-Semitic. What does that typically refer to? You're you're anti-Jewish, okay? Um, That's how it's termed now, but but to be literal, if you're anti-Semite, you're anti-Shem, which means you're half of You're you're anti a third of the world's population. So it really technically, um, if you're looking at the Bible, a Semite is anybody who descends from Shem. Anybody who descends from Shem. Um, There's the term Hebrew. There's the term Israelite. And then there's the term Jew. And so what I want to just talk about briefly is these are different things. A lot of times we go, oh, the Jews and the Israelites, are the same thing. They are not the same thing. All the Hebrews are the same thing as the Jews? No, they are not. They're different. And so, in order to understand this, um, best way—if you have a piece of paper, just just write um, "Shim" up at the top, and then maybe draw a big circle around "Shim." Okay. Under "Shim" would be the word "Hebrew." Now, Hebrew comes from the person known as Eber, and you'll find him. In chapter 10 of the Table of Nations, or chapter 11, I believe, actually. Let me check that real quick. Nope, chapter 10, verse 25, um, 24 and 25. Okay, so Eber is where we get the term Hebrew. So, so you got Shem, and later one of his descendants' name, Eber. So all Hebrews are Semites, but not all Semites are Hebrews. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so under Hebrew, I want you to write Israelite, okay? Where do we get the term Israel from? We'll talk about them tonight. Whose name was changed to Israel? Jacob, okay? So Jacob and Israel are the same person, and the 12 tribes are basically um, derivative of the 12 sons of Jacob, or the 12 sons of Israel, okay? So the Israelites are basically anybody who descends from Jacob, so, all Israelites are Hebrews, which means all Israelites are also Semites. But not all Semites are Israelites, and not all Hebrews are Israelites. Does that make sense? Okay. If, you, if it doesn't make sense, just nod yes, I and mean, then we'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, then we move down one more level, and you could put Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Just one of 12, okay? Judah, in Greek, is Euden. Euden is where we get the term Jew. In World War II, um, a lot of times you would see buildings, whether it's businesses or restaurants, that would have a big um, um, star of David on it, and it would say Euden. And that meant this was a, a Jewish person's residence. Don't buy or whatever, okay? And so Jews are basically anybody who is a descendant of Judah. Just Judah, not any of the other 11, just Judah, okay? And so all Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. All Jews are Hebrews, but for sure not all Hebrews are Jews. All Jews are Semitic, yes, but not all Semitic people are Jews. Okay, are you thoroughly confused now? Good for you. All right, so... Basically, anybody not confused, raise your hand. Anybody? makes sense, okay? So, when you see the terms Israelites, it doesn't always necessarily mean specifically the Jews. It could mean any one of the 12 tribes, not necessarily Judah. When you see the term Hebrews, it does not mean necessarily the Israelites or the Jews. It could mean a whole litany of people. So, for example, um, to be anti-Semitic um, would mean anybody coming from, from Shem. So anti-Semitic technically is being anti-Arabic as well. Okay, So you'll see that throughout, but I just wanted to make sure you understood that um, if you're on, I, on your iPod or on YouTube, just slow it down a little bit and, and write those out and um, you should be okay. So let's go ahead and look at tonight. Um, we're going to look at Jacob. Um, Isaac and Jacob. Um, we've got We've got Abraham. Turn to Genesis chapter 16, and again, we're going to be flying through. Um, We don't have time to stop at every sweet and cool story in the Bible. We are not going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, even though that is a pretty cool story. Um, So let's go actually back um, to 15, and we we see Abraham's, um, the covenant with Abram, who would later become Abraham, and we see the ceremony there. And then we get up to ver, or chapter 16, and we get this whole story of Hagar and Ishmael. And the reason why we want to talk about this um, tonight is because it's still playing out in today's newspapers. Um, chapter 16, let's look at, well, let's just read all of chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now stop. In today's culture, that that does not happen. Okay? In that culture, um, that would happen. If you weren't able to bear children, they would go, all right, well, I'm barren, but we need to have children because it's a huge disgrace not to. Sleep with my maid, sir. That obviously that doesn't happen today. Um, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took an Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now, real quick, what is the problem aside from a weird custom there? What is the problem that both Abraham or Abram and Sarai are, are doing right here? Okay, hey, they're not trusting God. They're lacking faith because what has already happened? Absolutely, God has already made a covenant—not only um, a covenant, but an unconditional covenant. The God of the universe, omnipotent, omniscient, all, has already promised, "I will follow through." And here we have, after about ten years, them starting to doubt. You know, I'm getting a little old. It's not happening. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Well, whatever. And they both lack faith here. They both lack faith. And Abraham is considered the father of faith, and yet we see an incredible lack of faith. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering so typical. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your own hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord, and we'll get to that in a second, told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Okay, don't ever say that to a newborn baby's mother. Um, His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now stop there. Ishmael, Ishmael is... Where we get all our Arab brothers and sisters. So, and if you go more specifically into the religion piece of it, Islam traces all the way back to Ishmael and actually all the way back to Abram. Both Judaism, uh, Christianity, um, and Islam all trace back to Abraham. Now, Islam will tell you it's a different story. Islam. We'll say it's reversed. It was actually Ishmael that was the promise. It was Ishmael that was the one that Abraham almost sacrificed. It was Ishmael that the bloodline would run through. And obviously the Bible says the reverse. Um, but Ishmael, um, the prophecy would be he would always be in fights. He would always um, be in wars, um, both instigating and taking it. Um, and that, that really has played out throughout, throughout history. She gave this name to the. Or she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees me. For she said, "I have now seen the one who sees me." This is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. If I didn't get that right, mumble to yourself. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abram was eighty-six years old when. Hagar bore him Ishmael. So he was, an, he was an old dude already. Okay? So there's um, the birth of Ishmael. The one key thing in here I want to point out is a person that will appear throughout the Bible. And this is very important. And I actually touched on this a couple weeks ago in our Q&A session. And then we hit it fairly strong this last Sunday. Um, anytime you see the term, the angel of the Lord... It's got a specific meaning. And it has to say the angel of the Lord, not an angel or an angel or whatever. The angel of the Lord, almost every single time you see that term, it is referring to not an angel, but the Lord himself. Okay? And not just God, God the Father, but God the Son. Almost any time you see the term the angel of the Lord it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Okay? Which should answer a lot of questions. And I, I'm, I, I was in ministry for many years. And I remember even asking the question, going, you know what? God was there at the beginning, and, and the Holy Spirit, and, and I, yeah, I know the Word was there in the beginning. But God and the Holy Spirit sure worked their butts off in the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't appear on the scene until zero Which we now know is 4 or 6 BC. Why was Jesus so quiet? And the answer is, he wasn't. In fact, Jesus or God the Son, the second part of the Trinity, was probably as active or more active in the Old Testament than the other two thirds. And whenever you see this term, you go, oh my gosh, this is so refreshing. It's so refreshing to look at the story of Gideon. This young little kid who is the least of the least of the least and the least clan of the least of the, you know. And here, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, sits down next to him and says, mighty warrior. It's so refreshing to know that when Moses was 80 years old and quite content in his shepherd life, That one day he was cruising around with his sheepies and he sees this bush on fire and the bush never diminishes. So he goes up to it and all of a sudden, out of the bush, Jesus is the one speaking. And now when you compare the talk between Jesus and Moses, that sounds an awful lot like the talk between Jesus and Pilate. Moses says... Well, who am I to tell sent me? The bush says, What? Say, I am sent you. I am that I am. Who else says that? Who are you? I am. <laughs> it's amazing to know that my Lord and Savior was the fourth person in the fiery furnace. It's amazing to know that my Lord and Savior played an active role in my redemption before the Word became flesh. But even throughout this bloodline, Jesus was playing an active role. And we see it here, comforting Hagar. Verse seven, or chapter 17, and we'll, let's skip up to verse 15. Okay, so Ishmael's born. Let, let's get to the next. Verse 15 God also said to Abraham As for Sarai your wife you are no longer to call her Sarai her name will be Sarah I will bless her and will surely give her a son or give you a son by her I will bless her so that she will be the mother of all of nations kings of peoples will come from her Abraham fell face down he laughed and said to himself Will a son be born to a man A hundred years old. Okay, so now it's 14 years later. Ishmael's now a 14-year-old teenager. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So here, here God again reiterates a promise. And instead of listening, Abraham does what? Just starts laughing. Okay, not wise, by the way, to laugh at God. Uh, He starts laughing. And, And Sarah would make this mistake as well. Then God said, Yes. But your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. For his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael. I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful. And will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant. I will establish with Isaac. So the bloodline will go through Isaac. Not Ishmael. Whom Sarah will bear to you. By this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham. God went up from him. Let's skip ahead to verse or chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of, of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way so that you have... So that now... I'm sorry. Go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three siahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the... The herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and and the calf that had been prepared, and he set these before them. While they ate he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah? They asked him. They're in the tent, he asked, or he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Now Sarah, while listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, by quite a ways. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You might want to underline that, by the way. It's pretty profound. It's pretty elementary, pretty basic. But it's something that we all do. We look at Abraham and go, how could you laugh at the face of God and doubt him? We look at Sarah, how could you laugh at God and doubt the omnipotent, all knowing God. But yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. In every aspect of our life, we do it. And so it does not hurt us to understand that simple truth. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. (laughs) I just like this simple little return. But he said, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) Just very, nothing dramatic about that. Just like, yes, silly woman. A couple things we need to learn from that. Number one, nothing is too hard for our Lord. Number two, you can't hide anything from God. You can't hide anything from God. Even things that are done in silence. Even things that are done on the inside. Your thoughts, your feelings. God knows all. God knows all. And so, Sarah has a child. He is named Isaac. The literal name of Isaac. Anybody know it? He laughs. God was getting him back. Skip ahead to chapter 22. And as we follow this timeline, we're at Abraham at about 2,000. And we know Moses is at 1,500. And we know there was about 350 to 400 years of basically silence, of slavery, that all the descendants, basically the nation of Israel, were under. So that 400 years, that means all, this, all these stories between Abraham, on to Isaac, and then on to Jacob are all happening within 100 and 150 years. Okay, so this is all happening um, right around the same time. So let's l- look here. This is about another decade in the future. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Now, this is a very important passage. This is why we're being a little repetitious with this for those who are on on Sunday. This is a powerful passage between Abraham, Isaac, and God. And this is where Abraham would get the term father of faith. And I want you to try to pick, as we read through this, try to identify where the faith moment happens. Because remember, Isaac is what? He's, he's the promise. okay The promise bloodline. He is their only son. And that would be re- reiterated over and over and over again. Abraham, take your son, your only son. Um, which sounds awful familiar to another story we catch 2,000 years later. So check this story out. On the third day, verse 4, on the third day... Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried and he, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As he took the two of them, or as the two of them um, went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, "Father." Yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay, so Isaac was perceptive. Okay, as most people probably would be. You're on this long journey. You're heading up to the top of this mountain. And you know you're going to have this big sacrifice. And you're going to build an offering. And so the common question would be, Well, where is this offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord... Let me me go back to verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham... Okay, remember that. This place is called, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Okay? Now that last term, and to this day it is said, okay, Moses is the one that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So as Moses is writing this to his audience, this is 500 years now in the future, and he's all, and to this day, this mountain still called, and the Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself. Angels, by the way, cannot swear by themselves. Remember who the angel of the Lord is? Okay. Declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and th- through your offsprings all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What's the big deal about that? Where'd the faith moment happen? Verse five, Why? Very good. Okay? So, a lot of times you hear messages and going, Abraham showed incredible faith because when he lifted the knife, he was about to plunge it into his heart. By the way, any parent, can you imagine laying your child out on, on an altar prepared to plunge a knife through them? Imagine that feeling. Now, add to the fact that Abraham was promised by God that this son would be the blessing. That through this son, the bloodline would move on. Imagine that moment as the knife is up here. How hard that would be. But that's not the faith moment. The faith moment did happen back in verse 5. When Abraham said, We, me and my son, will go there, and who will return? We will return. Now Abraham wasn't planning on disobeying God. He knew somehow... God would provide. He did not know how. Maybe it would be a lamb that walked by. Hey, how are you doing? Um, or maybe there would be a resurrection. Something would happen because Abraham, by faith, which means God enabled, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Enoch, God enabled, by faith, Abraham knew that God would provide. Story gets cooler when you understand that the angel of the Lord is most likely Jesus. Story gets even cooler when you understand that this mountain, Mount Moriah, is next to where the where the temple was eventually built. A thousand years later. Solomon's temple was built right next to this hill. Story gets cooler when you understand that a thousand years after Solomon built this, remnants of this temple were still in place. ...in the temple that Jesus spoke in. The temple courts that the early church met in. Solomon's colonnade, the portico. This is where the early church began. Story gets even cooler when you understand... ...well, if that was the temple mount... ...back 2,000 years ago... ...or 1,000 years ago... ...and that little hill next to it... ...was where Abraham almost sacrificed his son... ...and God said, no, I will provide... What hill was next to the Temple Mount when in Jesus' day? Where Jesus was crucified. 2,000 years ago, Jesus called out for heaven and said, Stop. On this hill, someday the Lord will provide. Someday, the bloodline that's going through your son's veins will lead up to the cross. And on this very hill... This blood would be let for the redemption of mankind. It's really cool when the stories of the Old Testament start intermingling with the New Testament. You start seeing where things come, come into play. Abraham had incredible faith. Was Abraham a perfect human being? No. We already bypassed a couple stories of where Abraham lied about his wife. In fact, He said, oh, no, this is my sister. Go ahead and take her into your harem. (laughs) Try that with your wife someday. (laughs) She's not my wife. She's my sister. Have her. And we will find out from Abraham on down the line, we have a litany of people who are jacked up. Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame is a list of people who were messed up. Jesus' bloodline is filled with messed up people. Jesus didn't come from a bloodline of kings and priests. You start looking at Jesus' bloodline, you see, well, there's a liar. There's some of the most horrific parenting in the history of the world. We have murderers, adulterers, rapists, drunkards, prostitutes. But yet it all goes back to that term, by faith. By faith. Somewhere along the line, each and every one of these people, by faith, realized that God was God and they were not. And they humbled themselves, and by faith, God did incredible things through them. And what's cool about that is Knowing that each and every person here in the purple chairs or up here all by himself on a lonely stage. Weird. uh, We're all messed up. We're all messed up. We all do things that are not good. We all think of things that are not good. And yet no matter how bad you think you are, how unqualified you think you are, if you're sitting in this room, you could be used by God. Not because of anything special about you, but because if you have faith in God, you can do anything. God can use you. If God can use Abraham, he can use you. If God can use Moses, he could use you. If God can use, and let's get to Isaac, let's get to Jacob. If God can use those yahoos, he can use us. So we, we move along in the future here. Isaac. Isaac's one of those crazy characters. He's he's most famous for not being sacrificed. Quite honestly, um, there's nothing really astonishing about Isaac's life except for he does carry carry the um, the bloodline. He would later um, he would later um, marry. So let's let's move on here real quick. Let's go up to verse chapter twenty five. And let's look at 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, of the, uh, the Arminian um, from, whatever, um, the sister, you got it, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and he said, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When the time came, Um, For her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. Now stop there for a second, because a lot of times we read through this in the Bible. How scared would you be? Now it's not like we have, oh look, there's twins. I mean, you're giving birth to a boy, and all of a sudden there's this like like from the movie Carrie, this like hand is like coming out with, probably startle you a little bit, not not to mention how apparently ugly the first baby was, anyway. Um, and so here, here's Esau, and then here comes Jacob. Jacob's name actually has a twofold meaning. The first one means grabber, creative. Um, The second one means he deceives. That will come into play um, quite a bit. Jacob and Esau are one of those sibling rivalries that are crazy um, in the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau were constantly, constantly fighting. Jacob was loved by his father. He was his father Isaac's favorite child. He was the hunter, and he he was able to bring Isaac some of the great meats and all the food and all that kind of stuff. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was his mama's favorite. And so as we as we look at the story, and obviously we're not going to go into depth tonight, as we look at this story, we see one of the, the first examples of many in the Old Testament of horrific parenting. Okay? Showing favoritism. Showing favoritism. And it would come to haunt Jacob on down the line. Okay? So we see this story of Jacob and Esau. In um, verse 25, Let, let's keep going. Verse 19, oh, let's keep going on verse 24. Then when the time came for her to give birth, um, there were 20, okay, well, we got that part. Uh, where am I at? 27. Okay, 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man in open car- uh, of open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from open com- country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. <laughs> I love the Old Testament. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. And how many times have your kids come in and go, I'm about to die. You... There's Esau. Um. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, Selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, And he ate and drank, And then they got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. What's a birthright? Well, birthright means the firstborn child Typically had the birthright of the family. They were were the heir of the estate. And so, as um, the the father died, the the firstborn male would have the birthright, and not only would he be the heir, but as everything was split up, he would give a he would get a double portion compared to everybody else. Esau despised his birthright. What does that mean? Well, it means his birthright equated to him as much as a bowl of lentil soup. He valued the birthright of his father. As much as a bowl of lentil soup. And who was there to take in all the glory of this? The deceiver, Jacob. By the way, if you've seen the movie Thor, this is Thor and Loki. This is exactly what this is. This is Thor and Loki, and probably they stole it from the Bible. We'll blame Solomon in telling too many tales. But So this is Thor and Loki, same kind of brotherly um, relationship. Okay, so he sold his birthright, or he despised it, for lentil soup. Let's look at um, 29 real quick. Let's actually not go up to 29. Okay, the next story, and we're running out of time, the next piece is even a crazier one. It's not about the birthright, it's about a blessing. As a father was about to die, he would give his blessing to his sons. And he he was specifically the oldest one would get the blessing. And so as we read, and you'll read um, in your daily reader, as Jacob and Esau were preparing um, to get this whole um, blessing, and Esau now actually did care about it. He'd already lost his birthright, and he blames Jacob for, for taking it. Now, Rebekah, now who who does she love? Jacob, devises a plan to steal the blessing. Now, Isaac was getting old, couldn't see that well. And so they did this big old trick where they they made Jacob all hairy and puts a pretty disgusting story. And they trick Isaac into giving the blessing over to Jacob. This, this would end up happening. Um, Isaac would end up giving the blessing to Jacob. This would infuriate Esau. And from this point on, Esau and Jacob, Esau swore that he would kill Jacob. And Jacob actually had to flee from Esau. Again, we see an, a, a story of favoritism, of deception. Of the husband and wife playing the kids against each other. This would haunt Jacob for a long time. We'll see stories as Jacob goes down. And with Jacob's own 12, remember Jacob would eventually be called Israel, and he would have 12 sons of his own. Favoritism would happen there as well. Who, who did Jacob favor? Joseph. Who despised Joseph? Everybody else. So again, another story of a jacked up issue. And we'll get to, we'll get to the 12 tribes of Israel um, Um, at a a later time. So as we leave tonight, I just want want, want to focus in on a couple things. Um, And we are out of time. Number one, we've got to trust in God. We've got to trust in God's promises. We've got to trust that what God says will happen when God says it will happen. Second is we need to understand that God absolutely loves us. And he has a plan for each and every one of us. And so many times we see, even in these early patriarchs, where these people took matters into their own hands. They didn't trust God's promises or God's plan or ultimately God's word. And so they would take it into their own hands. And any time we take things into our own hands, what happens? Things get messed up. Things get messed up because, as John the Baptist so eloquently said, we have to become less so he could become what? Greater. The lesser we become, the more of Jesus there is. The less people see of us in our lives and the more they see of Jesus, the better things work out. It's like someone um, standing up during a movie those people that just couldn't go to the bathroom before the movie started they have to go to the bathroom during the movie now i feel a little bit more sympathy for them as i get older realizing oh they actually probably did both um, but so sorry so what happens when someone stands in front of projection what happens to the screen whatever image is on that screen goes what black, black disappears The more of the projection they block, the more of the screen becomes what? Black. As we walk in our lives, the more we stand in front of God's projection in our lives, the blacker and darker it gets, and the less clarity there is. The more we get out of God's way, the more our life becomes clear, the more of the story we see. The less we block, the more of the story we see. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see people constantly blocking God. Constantly standing in the way of God's plan. Constantly taking things upon themselves. And again, what, what is sin all the way back to the very first night? What, what's sin? It's acting independently of God's plan for our life. We see this in Abraham. We see this in Isaac. We will see this in Jacob. But here's the third thing we need to remember. Remember? Even when we mess up, God's plan will still happen. We might lose out on some blessings. But even when we mess up, God's plan will still happen. And so if you're sitting here going, you know, I, I've, I'm messing up. I've messed up. I've, God's promises. he'll meet you exactly where you're at. And if you want to humble yourself and get out of the projector's way... And allow God by faith to use you. Nothing will stop you. Nothing will stop you. God from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Set forward a motion. To redeem the world. And no matter how many times Satan tries to mess it up. No matter how many times man stumbles and and messes up. That plan has been in motion. And it led all the way up to the cross, and it's been and it's phenomenal as we go through the Old Testament. And and it's going to—I'm telling you—one of my favorite stories in all the Bible um, is this whole transition between Joseph and Moses. We have a shepherd who rises up to the prince of Egypt, only to have a prince of Egypt who rises up to a shepherd, and how God moves through a people to go from a family of 12 to a nation of millions. And it's so fun to look back on the timeline and go, God, you're a genius. I would never have thought to do that the crazy way you did it. But now I see that's the only way you could have done it. And so my encouragement to you and to myself, if I had a mirror here, you might think there's a great plan for your life and you have the the sweetest idea Humble yourself and just allow God to start moving. And even when you think things are going a little bit crazy, that's probably a good indication that God might be moving in your life. And who knows where you'll be. Today I had the amazing opportunity to be an assessor, to sit here and assess with my little clipboard future pastors, future leaders. And much to my surprise, in the room walks in an assessor. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I look at this assessor. It was a junior high kid who was in my youth group at Cornerstone about 10 years ago. He's not only a pastor now. He not only was on staff with me. He's now assessing for the conference other pastors. Here's what's amazing about this. You look when I first got here, there was only eight junior hires. When I first got to Cornerstone, there was about 300 people. We were meeting over in a school and there was eight junior hires in this smelly room. And I was the junior high youth pastor. And if you look at the, if you line these eight kids up, he's the last one you would have chosen. The last one you would have chosen by a long way. And I'll tell you, even as he went up through high school, that kid got into more trouble that kid should never have graduated high school. I'm not sure he did. <laughs> That's okay. I, I sort of cheated myself. but um, And to look at this kid, and no one would have given him a chance. No one would have given him a chance. And here today, he's assessing other pastors, and he's part of a movement up in Washington. God's crazy. God will do things. And he doesn't need your your advice. He needs your obedience. And I I can't wait to see who God uses out of this room and who God is currently using and who God will use out of our student ministries. Questions? And I know it's 8 o'clock, so if you have kaboomers. um, Any questions on tonight? I know we didn't really get too crazy on some weird stuff, but any questions at all? Okay. Oh, did you have one? Nope. Okay, so next, next week, where are we at? Ooh, next week is Moses. Okay, Moses, Moses, Moses. You want to be here next week. There's, Trust me, you want to be here next week for Moses. Okay, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opp- opportunity to be here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even back in the Old Testament... Your plan was moving. Your plan to send your son was already moving. And the cool thing, he was part of it. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we dig into your word, we we see your plan. We just don't see the stats and all these other things, but we actually see your plan and your love and your grace for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all those jacked up people in the past that you used. We thank you for your love for them. We thank you for them and their faith to at some point in their life submit their their everything to you. Heavenly Father, I just pray that now that as we look back to the cross and we look back at redemption and salvation, Heavenly Father, I pray that you burden us to reach out to those who still need to understand what it means to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Heavenly Father, burden us to move, burden us to go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for this church. We thank you for its vision. Heavenly Father, I pray for Pastor Lynn. I pray that you continually give him wisdom to see things the way you see them. Heavenly Father, as we move on through Journey 180, I just pray that you illuminate the things that you want us to see, want us to hear. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we we walk through this timeline, that that we see your hand, and how much you absolutely love us. And I pray that you strengthen our faith and allow us to realize that you can use each and every one of us in the most powerful ways, no matter what our background, no matter what our education level, no matter what we look like, dress like, no matter how much money we have or don't have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful promise that if we would just submit ourselves, you will move mountains. We love you and we praise you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, see you guys next Tuesday night, those Sunday night Sunday miners see you Sunday. Bye bye.